Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hello everyone. I'm your host James Rogers and this is the History Hit Warfare podcast. If it's your first time here, we are dedicated to bringing you histories that go back as far as Napoleonic battles and Cold War confrontations through to the Normandy landings and 9/11. And of course, we're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9/11 and we're preparing a special commemorative week on the podcast. We're welcoming Joe Dittmar, who was on the 105th floor of Tower 2. And he takes us through his personal experience of surviving 9-11 and escaping that tower. We're also joined by Jessica DeLong, who provides a very different perspective of that day. She served at Ground Zero, and she tells us what it was like to fight those raging fires and to evacuate thousands of people by boat across the Hudson. We're also joined by world-leading experts on the history of terrorist hijackings and the history of terror attacks on New York going back to the 1920s. For this episode, I met with Professor Beverly Gage from Yale University, who is author of The Day Wall Street Exploded, a story of America in the first age of terror. As we approach the 20th anniversary of 9-11, Beverly places those shocking surprise attacks on the US into their historical context, and she shows us that New York has long been a target for terror. So here she is, Professor Beverly Gage, on the day Wall Street exploded. Hi Beverly, thank you so much for coming on the History Hit Warfare podcast. Great to chat to you in actual person. This is a rare treat. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. It is rare. I think this is the first podcast or anything like it that I've done in a very long time where I am sitting in the same room as the other person. I know. There's a bit of atmosphere. You can probably hear a little bit of an echo if if you're listening at home. You might even be able to hear an ambulance or a fire engine go past. This is all the good stuff, layers and textures to our conversation. But we're talking about a very different crisis today. One which I know you term America's first age of terror back in the 1920s. A history that bears resonance today as we approach that 20th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks on New York and Washington DC back in 2001. So tell us, what was this first age of terror? Who did it involve and where did it start? Well, the first age of terror, though... This book is primarily about a bomb attack on Wall Street in 1920. I think of as something much longer, really going back to the 1870s or so. 
it is a period from the 1870s up to the 1920s when there were actually a stunning number of bomb attacks in the United States, most of them committed by you know, anti-capitalist radicals of one sort or another who had really a philosophy of terrorism, who believed that acts of bombing and assassination were going to help bring about the revolution. And my book is about kind of the culmination of that, the worst one of them, but this age of terror was quite a lot longer. Okay, so there's a scholar called David Rappaport who talks about the waves of terrorism. So is this the same wave that we would call the anarchist wave? Is this what motivated them? Are these the ones who wanted to bring a complete change and collapse of the current status quo of society? Yeah, I think it fits very well within Rappaport's ideas of waves of terrorism. I think in the United States, it's a little bit distinctive because while there was an anarchist movement and some of this was in that context, the United States also throughout this period had an incredibly violent set of labor exchanges, if you want to call them labor exchanges or labor battles. And so at least some of this violence on both sides really happened in that context. And then, of course, the United States also has a very intensive history of racial violence during this period, which I write about less in this particular book, but I think we can also understand as being the key part of the kind of level of violence that permeated American society at this moment. So in the US, it was inspired by economic inequality, probably during this time as well. We're talking about the era of Great Depression, people losing their jobs, but also racial elements. But this is this the same global context where we see the start of this brewing in Russia, for example, and then this spreading around the world? Are these the same terrorists that we can hold responsible for playing that not insignificant part, in the start of the First World War. Exactly. So some of them are literally the same, because for a lot of this period, the United States was sort of a haven for revolutionaries around the world. Seems hard to think about, but the U.S. had relatively open immigration at the time. So places like New York were real havens for German revolutionaries, Russian revolutionaries, Irish revolutionaries. They came here, they could often publish their papers and kind of exchange their ideas here in the United States. And of course, then were involved in some of the same revolutionary politics here. So really beginning with something like the Haymarket Affair in 1886, which was a bombing in which several policemen were killed in Chicago and eight anarchists were put on a kind of big political show trial, the assassination of William McKinley in 1901, the bombing of the Los Angeles Times in 1910 that killed 20-some people. There are a series of these really dramatic events that come to a head in 1919 and 1920, ultimately with a series of very dramatic mass bombings in 1919, and then this bombing on Wall Street, which was by far the deadliest of all of these kind of alleged acts of revolutionary terrorism. You see, I find this fascinating because when I think of that particular terrorist group and their modus operandi, their way of doing things, it's very much about the assassinations. And you hear a lot about McKinley as well. And, you know, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and the people around the world that they try and take out to break that cycle of power, soon which they arguably achieve by maybe instigating and starting the First World War and the massive revolutionary change that happens as a result of that. But high impact explosions and explosives is something that I might think of as more of a, a modern way of doing terrorism. If you can hear that noise in the background, this is it. This is in real life. This is what we're doing now. 
But the high-impact explosion that you talk about is the day that Wall Street blew up. So tell us about this. So that day was September 16th, 1920. It was a Thursday and a pretty ordinary day on Wall Street. We are a couple of years out from the end of the First World War at that point. We are three years out from the Bolshevik Revolution and not of great relevance to that particular event, but of some relevance to all of us today, really at the tail end of the flu pandemic. So this is September of 1920, and at noon, uh, one minute after noon, on the corner of Wall and Broad Street, a horse-drawn wagon exploded into the lunchtime crowd. This was an incredibly significant corner. The New York Stock Exchange was right there. The Bank of Morgan, J.P. Morgan's headquarters, was right on the corner where this horse-drawn wagon exploded, uh, by far the most powerful bank in the United States, and a pretty controversial bank. And this was also the corner that had been the first capital of the United States. So it was where George Washington had taken his oath of office as president. So at this corner, just after noon on September 16th, 1920, this horse-drawn wagon explodes. If you've been down to Wall Street, it doesn't look too different today. Most of those buildings are roughly the same buildings that were there in 1920. And at the time, it was incredibly crowded. Most of the business on Wall Street was done by kind of running back and forth between the buildings. This was the lunch hour. People were just starting to pour out of their offices. So when this explosion happened, it was really a mass casualty event. In the end, it killed 38 people. It wounded several hundred people, lost limbs, really quite serious injuries. It shattered windows all throughout lower Manhattan, uh, including at the New York Stock Exchange, which was right nearby. It's got these giant windows that face onto the trading floor. Those windows blew inside, though they were blocked by curtains, happily, or the casualties would have been much worse. So as this massive event, it shut down the stock market in New York, which subsequently shut down the financial markets throughout the country. And of course, as people began to assess the damage and look around at what happened, the question was, who had done this on probably the most famous corner, certainly in New York, if not in the country? Did they specifically target that site due to its historical or its economic importance? The way it was articulated as people began to speculate about who might have done this was that what the corner of Wall and Broad Streets really represented was neither government nor capitalism, but the intersection of the two of them. So many radicals were saying in the aftermath of the First World War and then kind of counter-revolutionary politics that had been underway in the U.S., the Red Scare, that the U.S. government had become captured by the big banks, that the U.S. had gone to war for capitalism, and that no place in the United States represented that the way that Wall and Broad Streets did. The stock market, the bank, the site of American government, many of the country's most powerful and influential financial figures right down there on that corner. So that was the immediate understanding. And it set off a months-long search for the people who might have, in fact, done it. Okay, you're tempting us there, but who did it? Well, we don't actually know. So this was, as I said, the biggest terrorist attack of its moment at one of the most important and influential sites in the country. 
Most of the people who were killed were not big bankers, but many of them were pretty prominent members of, uh, you know, kind of New York middle, upper middle class. Others were messengers or passers-by. But still, almost 40 people killed on Wall Street. And this launched a massive investigation by the federal government, by the New York police, by private detective agencies, who in that moment often had much better resources, or at least more widespread resources than focused local departments. And they all actually failed. Now, there are good theories about who it is. And I think that we know, but there was never any trial. And it actually went down as an unsolved crime. That is astonishing to think, especially in the world we live in today, where everything is covered by CCTV cameras and all of our messages can be accessed or tracked. But you think of it, back then, there was none of that. So I suppose you can just seamlessly melt into the crowds. Have you heard of the teenage werewolf prosecuted in 1603? Did you know that the 17th century British government relied heavily on female spies? And do you want to know about chin-chucking and thigh sex? Of course you do. I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, is a deep dive into what I like to think of as the long 16th century. We'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Velezquez to Shakespeare, Mughal India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. What counter-terror measures were brought in after these attacks to stop it from happening again? Because 
After 9-11, there were vast, sweeping counter-terror laws that came through. And the same in the UK in the battle against the IRA. Terrorism always produces counter-terrorism measures, some of which can be controversial and potentially more damaging than helpful. Is that the same case post this attack? One of the strange things about this bombing is that it came at a moment when a lot of that dynamic had already been playing out. So the previous year, in 1919, there had been two waves of bomb attacks in the United States that had sparked a massive crackdown on radicals. Uh, One of those was a series of mail bombs that was sent out to mark May Day in 1919. Those bombs went out to 30 different people ranging from the attorney general to the commissioner of immigration to judges who had passed sentence on various radical actors. So those bombs, given that there were 30 of them, sparked really an initial wave of fear, though actually most of them never got where they were supposed to go because there wasn't enough postage on them. (laughs) So they were found in the New York post office, but several of them did get delivered, one to the mayor of Seattle, who had just done a big crackdown on the Seattle general strike. Another was sent to a senator named Thomas Hardwick in Georgia, who had been very outspoken anti-immigration senator. And unfortunately, one of his servants opened the bomb and had her hands blown off and part of her face blown off and was really grievously injured. So that was the first set of bomb attacks. And then a month later, on the night of June 2nd, There were another series of coordinated attacks. These were actual bombs that went off at almost the same time in seven different American cities, including at the home of the Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer, who was sitting at home with his family that night. They heard a big thump, and then their house began to shake, and an explosion went off and sort of sheared off at least part of the front of their house. So that, as a coordinated attack happening in so many different cities, had already been the spark of not only what's known as the first Red Scare, but also a series of counterterrorism measures, probably the most famous piece of which was the Palmer Raids, which were mass deportation raids that were aimed first at anarchists and then at communists. But there were a whole series of other rather over-the-top crackdowns on anyone who might be considered an American radical in New York. They threw all of their socialist assemblymen out of the state legislature, etc., etc. So it was not a model moment for civil liberties. You had pretty dramatic crackdowns throughout 1919 into 1920. But by the time the Wall Street bombing happened, there were a lot of people who were saying, These look like massive violations of civil liberties. It looks like this might not be such a good idea. And so that bombing itself produced a whole lot of debate about what ought to be done, but in many ways is a moment that the country kind of pulled back from the more extreme counterterrorism measures. You see, that's interesting. And one thing we know about terrorism in the domestic context is that you want to try and keep the people on side that are supporting your terrorist cause, right? And these seem like they're quite targeted attacks in the first instance, at least. They're not designed or aimed at the general public. Although you could argue that the ones on Wall Street are a bit more indiscriminate, they're still there on the banking districts. What was the public opinion of the terror attacks, of the terrorist cause, of their political cause? Of course, 
terrorism is terrorism because it has a political cause at its core. Did these larger attacks push people away from them? Were they disgusted? Did they find it abhorrent? Or did it increase support? I think for the most part, for the general public, for people who are not particularly involved in revolutionary movements, these are hugely discrediting events. In 1919 and then even into 1920, they're also coming in the midst of really massive labor uprisings in the United States. 1919 is the most strike-prone year in American history. Four million people went out on strike. About 25% of the workforce went out on strike. That was continuing into 1920. And so lots of people saw these somehow as being linked Right. So there were those who made the argument that these revolutionary causes were discrediting labor, which was clearly revolutionary. Of course, a lot of people in the labor movement said we have nothing to do with this, but were upset because it might discredit the larger movement. So I would say the public conversation, for the most part, is quite over the top in targeting not only radicals of all sorts, but it helps to fuel immigration restriction, which comes along in the 1920s. It helps to fuel a major crackdown on labor and in many ways becomes the kind of death knell of the anarchist movement, certainly, and severely injures the kind of fledgling communist party, though, of course, we sealed revival a little bit later on. So I think that's the big story. But of course, there were many people, even in that moment, who argued that, in fact, this was a form of just retribution against capitalists in particular, against government figures who were conducting these repressive policies, particularly against immigrants. So you did see kind of a big public conversation about all of it, but for the most part, it was kind of a disaster for radical movements in general. Well, I've got to ask, this is a massive attack, whichever way you look at it. It's in the centre of New York. You're blowing up Wall Street. I mean, hundreds of people injured. Why have we not heard about this before? Or is it just me who hasn't heard about it? I can't imagine a point in a hundred years' time where people won't still be talking about the attacks on 9-11. So why are we not talking more about the attack on Wall Street? It's definitely not just you. Okay, good. (laughs) In fact, that was one of the things that first got me interested in it was that I saw a mention of it and I thought, well, that sounds pretty bad. Why haven't I heard of this before? And it seemed like it might be a lens into all sorts of interesting issues, as it turned out to be. Um, And I think the question of public memory is really an interesting one on this particular attack. So part of it, I think, is simply that there wasn't a show trial or a real trial, for that matter, that the investigation itself sort of petered out. And so it became hard to identify, though probably it was, in fact, a group of Italian anarchists who did this or one man in particular. But there wasn't a trial. There wasn't a big follow up. And so it sort of petered out in that sense. You know, the investigators who failed to find anyone didn't have much incentive to keep this story alive. The bankers and the victims at the time, interestingly, also wanted to hush it up, move along as quickly as possible. The Morgan Bank and others deliberately put no memorial on Wall Street, aside from the pockmarks that are still there inside of the Morgan building. So if you go walk along Wall Street, you can still see where this bomb struck. 
But other than that, they wanted to simply move along on the philosophy that if you paid too much attention to these things, you just encouraged more of them, that it might destabilize financial markets and capitalism. And of course, radicals themselves had very little interest in keeping this alive because for the most part, it had served to be quite controversial, to discredit their movement, even those who were not tied to it. So I think nobody had much of an interest in keeping this story alive. There was no big trial. And I guess one other piece that's quite interesting to me is that I think there was a different relationship with injury and safety and death in this moment. You know, we had just come through the war this experience of mass death. You'd just come through the flu pandemic, which was another mass death experience. This is a moment when 35,000 people are dying every year in industrial accidents, right? There's all kinds of violence going on. And so while this was a hugely dramatic event, there were dozens of pages of paper covering it the next day. And for weeks afterwards, it wasn't as totally anomalous, I think, as it might appear to us today. That's a really interesting point. We have a different perception of mortality today, but also the fact that terrorism is such a continuing, gigantic issue within our society and still deemed one of the biggest threats, the number one threat, perhaps before COVID came through. But back then, there were just a litany of different threats and issues in society that would risk your life. Now, I've got another question that I have to ask. If none of us have heard about this, and I've not heard about this, then how did you first stumble across this? I saw a mention of it, I think, in a textbook. And that led me to then go look at the news coverage and to discover immediately that the New York Times devoted something like 17 pages of the next day's newspaper wow. to this. And there were dozens of newspapers in New York at this time. So you just had all of this wealth of coverage. So that told me that this was a big deal. And then I filed a freedom of information request with what we call the FBI, which at the time was known as the Bureau of Investigation. And I didn't know if anything would turn up. And then one day, you know, a year or two into graduate school, I got this giant box at the time. It was all on paper. And it was a giant box of, you know, about 10,000 pages of the bombing investigation. So I thought, ah, <laughs> there's, there's really something to pursue here. Now, one of the funny and frustrating things about that box of files was though, even at the time, we were about 80 years out from the bombing when I first got those documents back when I was in graduate school. And they were still heavily redacted. There were lots of names missing. There are lots of pages that were entirely blacked out. So now we're more than 100 years later. So I myself am probably not going to do it, but it'd be great if someone wanted to you know, file another FOIA request to have those files reprocessed. And then maybe we would find out in the end what the missing story might be. Well, there you go. There's your call to arms if you're listening and you want to go and see a degree in this, in terrorism studies or history, or you're looking to do your postgraduate studies or PhD, then uh, you can apply at Yale, where Beverly is, or whatever your local university is, and get digging into these files. Because you've really started a detective work here. You're kind of the detective that we needed back then to help solve this. Did it feel like you were going through a mystery? Did you feel like a bit of a historical detective when you were doing it? 
I didn't. Of course, when I started out doing it, I thought, aha, I will solve this in a way that, you know, dozens of detectives at the time failed to do. I didn't get there. It's a little hard to do, as it turns out, 80 years later. But another historian, Paul Avrich, who was a historian of anarchism, had posited years earlier because he knew many of these people and he sort of knew the rumor mill in anarchist circles that the most likely culprit was a friend of Sacco and Vanzetti's, the famous Italian anarchists who were on trial in the United States around that same time. So that still seems like the most likely theory, having gone through those thousands and thousands of pages and thousands more of news coverage, etc., that it was this friend of Sacco and Vanzetti's. Sacco and Vanzetti belonged to a group of Italian immigrant radicals who were strong believers in terrorism, who had committed lots of bombings in the United States, many of whom had been deported right before this moment. And those who hadn't were pretty pissed off. So that, I think, in the end, is the most likely scenario, though, again, we never got the trial that we needed. Well, thank you so much. I know that many of us saw the destruction of the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as the first major terrorist attacks on U.S. soil. But you've certainly shown us that terrorism also has this longer history. Where can people read more? They can buy the book. It's called The Day Wall Street Exploded. It's got lots of good images, as well as a good detective story in there, and excellent characters. So it is both about this whole historical era, but it's a pretty rip-roaring narrative too, I hope. (laughs) Beverly, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thanks, it was a lot of fun. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hip. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland 
further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.